Hi there, welcome to the Product Experience Podcast, your one-stop shop for inspiring conversation on product-related topics. My name is Lily Smith. And I'm Randy Silver, and we're lucky enough to be your hosts. Hey Lily, when was the last time you created a roadmap? Oh, um, I honestly can't remember. Uh, but then when you're working with small startup teams, sort of pre-product market fit, you don't generally have a need for a roadmap because everyone's just focused on the same mission. And I found other tools like OKRs more useful for documenting that that kind of mission. Um, but I have built them before, um, probably quite a while ago. Um Although now I know they were release plans and not roadmaps. <laughs> How about you? Oh, definitely guilty. I've done both, but I think I've learned better over the last couple of years. It's not always easy to convince my organization of the difference, though, especially if they've always been used to Gantt charts. But I'm working on it. And this week's guest has been a huge help with that. Tell the people who we've got. This week, we're talking to Bruce McCarthy, founder of Product Culture and president of the Boston Product Management Association. Bruce also co-wrote the book on roadmaps called Roadmaps Relaunched. And I love the tagline, which is how to embrace uncertainty and set direction. We chatted about how he helps organizations embrace product thinking, what a roadmap really is, and his favorite method for prioritization. But there's one thing I need to warn you about before you, we jump into it. Uh, we, we recorded this one during a break at the Mind the Product Leadership Conference, and there's some background noise. At one point, quite a bit of background noise, but it still sounds really good. The sound quality is high. The conversation was fantastic, and we decided we really wanted to put this one out just the way it is. And without further ado, here we go. I'm a management consultant in software product development, but... When people ask me, what do you do? What I tell them is that I help companies figure out their product culture and grow it um, because that usually prompts a deeper question. Well, what's product culture, right? <laughs> and the answer to that is there are lots of tools. There are lots of processes. There's lots of training. There's lots of things you can go through to teach you about product management or product development, but none of that really does the trick. It only gets you so far. What's really different about successful organizations um, that are that are repeatedly successful in new product innovation is cultural, yeah. is much less tangible. It's about common assumptions about why we're here, about what the purpose of our work is. Not what's your job, but what's our common purpose. Yeah. And so it's about deciding that we're here for the customer. We're here to make them more awesome. And it's about giving the teams the autonomy to figure out how to get there. Yeah. Um, and it's about trusting them to manage their own work on, on the way there. And it's about testing and verifying whether the things that you're doing are actually improving the life or the job of your customer. So do you find yourself working more with uh, the kind of business leaders than sort of specifically with product people? Well, it's a mix of, of the two. Um, I do work a lot with directly with product people. Um, more and more I work with product leaders who are partly trying to figure out how to organize their teams for success, how to support their teams, because so many uh, product leaders are um, hiring less experienced product managers today just out of necessity. There's a huge shortage of experienced product people. 
I did a, a search on LinkedIn uh, for the number of people with the word product in their title in the United States, and it came out to about half a million, right. which was bigger than I expected, but still not a very big number, right? But I did a, then I did a search for the open jobs on LinkedIn, just on LinkedIn, never mind Indeed or the other bigger sites, um, with the word product in the title, and it was over one million. Right. There are twice as many open jobs for product managers now as there are people doing the job. Yeah. So there's a huge shortage. So they're finding challenges in uh, supporting and bringing along their teams. They can't necessarily hire somebody who can really act with total autonomy because they haven't done it before. Yeah. They're hiring people on potential, and then it's a matter of how do they develop that potential. The other job that I'm helping product leaders with is bringing along the rest of their organization with how they need to operate with operating with an outcomes uh, orientation rather than an outputs orientation. If you take a look at um, the book I co-authored, Product Roadmaps Relaunched, in it we say the reason that people have stopped doing roadmaps is that the traditional way of doing roadmaps is all about outputs, and that's outmoded as a way of thinking. Yeah. It's not working for teams, and so um, we tried to do with the book an education job to help that product leader who is maybe starting to get it themselves, that that's the where they need to go and needs to bring the rest of the organization along. Okay, so you have some advice in there on how to kind of coach the rest of your business or, or kind of bring your, the rest of your business. Yeah, um, and increasingly that's, um, that's a part of my work as a consultant as well, yeah. is helping um, executive teams as a whole get that message and get that orientation. Actually, um, I just spent a bunch of time in New Zealand and met a bunch of leaders at companies there, and they're hungry for this. They've recognized that the old ways of thinking about things are not working in the fast-changing environment that, that they're in right now. Uh, technology is partly um, driving that change. Everything they build now is a little bit of a science experiment, so they can't be sure what the out whether the outputs are going to generate the outcomes they're looking for, it's certainly not a year in advance. But secondly, the pace of business has accelerated to the point where they don't know what the competition is going to do. They don't know what, what sort of consumer expectations are going to change over the course of, an, of the usual planning cycle of a year or more. So they really need to focus more on outcomes for the customer, outcomes for the business, and we will... Um, more, we will respond to how uh, how the work that we're doing is or isn't moving the needle on those things in um, in the moment. Uh, I, I I sat I spent some time with you'd think very conservative companies like telcos and power producers, and they even in a, a place like New Zealand that feels very far away um, have got that message and are hungry for what can they do to think and act differently. So you go into companies like this, you, you said uh, earlier, you're talking about you're working with companies on setting a product culture. Yeah. Do you find that, uh, what's the right way of doing that? Do you find that, is that something that is imposed and brought in, or is it something that's emergent and comes out of the company? Are all companies unique in this, or are there commonalities in, there, in the culture? There are definitely commonalities. What, what I find is that different parts of the organization are at different points in their realization, in their journey of discovery of what this is. But it's almost never the case that you go in and everyone is cold to the concept. It's all, all, There's always 
people who, when you start to talk about these things, they go, yes, damn it, yes, I've been saying this for years. Thank you for somebody coming in from outside and saying it, right? Um, then it's a question of, like you were asking before, how do you help them spread the message through the organization? How do you find the other receptive parties and can put those put them together? And how do you provide a framework that makes it safe and rational? Um, many executives are just very used to the idea of we have a planned set of projects that we fund at the beginning of the year. Um, and when you first introduce the idea of, well, we're going to throw all that away, they're naturally afraid. Yeah. They're like, well, then what? It's just chaos? We just give people money and they get to play? What? what? What, 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 how do we set expectations? But when you start to connect outputs and outcomes, that's where things change. So you can get even the, the laggards um, on board by saying, well, tell me why you were thinking of funding that project in the first place. Well, we think it will drive engagement, which will drive um, renewals, et cetera. Okay, so what if we make the goals, engagement and renewals? And this project is just one way we might accomplish that start to um, have, the, have the right kind of conversation. So I spend a lot of time having those, those reorienting people's thinking conversations. And it is it's quite a kind of a massive mind shift for people to start thinking um, in, in that kind of way. Is there, is there like a, an approach that you take where you kind of give them a, a small project or something, or you kind of like take them down the route of, let's just try it with this team or with this kind of project yeah. and then, yeah. My favorite way to do it, especially in an organization where there isn't already broad alignment that this is necessary, is rather than a giant big bang transformation, oh, you know, you're all fired from your jobs and you can get rehired to a different job, that kind of um, concept. I'd rather do a pilot, Yeah. I'd, especially where there's a lot of skepticism. Is I'd rather take one team. And I, I find that I don't even have to, the pilot is successful. A small, a tiny pilot, six or eight people, um, that in a few weeks or months accomplishes something that otherwise would have seemed impossible at a large bureaucratic organization. The news of that spreads organically through the organization quickly, especially within the technical teams, I find. They talk to each other more than they listen to management anyway, right? So if you can demonstrate success uh, quickly and then the executives start hearing about it from multiple other teams, oh, why don't we do that? Uh, that worked over there. That sounds good to me. Then you find um, that you can bring along the, um, the, 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 the management that way. I've, um, I've several times um, gone into organizations for a short project and, and got called back by the executive because of demand from the teams, not from the executive. Yeah. They said, um, everybody kept talking about that project that you did with the team and they want to do something like that again, can you help? And how much support do you need to, do you need to provide in that situation? Because, um, so I, I had a, a, an experience where we did like an, an agile transformation. We were working very waterfall. We had a, an amazing agile coach who designed a whole program of like change and then um uh and then they fired him um <laughs> and the, but the program still went ahead yes and uh and and it just it 
you know, gradually over time, they managed to sort out all the problems. But, uh, you know, having someone on hand, I think if we'd stayed, basically, we would have got the kind of um, success much quicker. Well, maybe so, but it's good news that you did get there and maybe yeah. there was a positive effect from that coach that carried over. Yeah. My my job um, as a um, an outsider is not to be there permanently. I don't want to be with a company forever because it means I'm part of the machine, not fixing the machine, not improving the machine. So I want to leave the situation better than I found it. I want to leave the teams more able to run the machinery um, and learn how to fix it themselves. Um, so I, I make an effort not just to do things, but to coach other people doing things, um, to give them a framework and then say, you try it. Um, and then you change the framework if you need to. So um, I, um, I wrote in, in the road mapping book a whole chapter on different prioritization methods, why to use different ones at different times. Um, and there's quite a detailed one that I, that I favor is this scorecarding method. But the thing about it is that you can change the terms in the prioritization scorecard. You can, you, can, you can feed in your own objectives, first of all, but you can decide, well, how many objectives should we have? And what kind of a scale, one to, you know, one to three or one to 10 or whatever do we want to use? And do we want to use weighting between different objectives? Um, and I encourage people to try it and then change it to their needs, um, own it themselves. So then it's not, they're not doing my prioritization method anymore. They're doing their prioritization method. That was one of my favorite parts of the book is actually, it's just the fact, the way that uh, it was called out in that chapter. Bruce's favorite is yeah. the ROI scorecard. Yes, that's right. So can you talk a little bit more about that specific technique? So the basic idea of the scorecard is, uh, is to try to estimate return on investment of anything that you might do. You can use it to prioritize different uh, outputs, um, or you can use it to even prioritize different um, problems to solve, even before you know what the solution is. And basically what you're trying to decide is if we solve this problem, what is it do for us as a business. Um, everything, hopefully, on your list is customer problems to solve or problems you need to solve on the way to solving customer problems. Mm -hmm. But it, how, do you, how do you prioritize those things if you have a list that is way too long, which virtually everyone does, right? Um, and so my thinking is you want to prioritize it based on how close, to, how, how uh, fast does it move you toward your goals versus how much effort is it to get done. Um, the things that are gonna hit on multiple of your business objectives strongly and are not a lot of effort, well, doesn't it only make sense that you should do those first, reap the benefit of those, use the extra capacity or money or whatever it is that results from that, um, from that early investment on a quick win, for lack of a better term, to fund the harder, longer term efforts. So you're telling essentially the same message as the two-by-two two quadrant of low-hanging fruit. It really but is. it's a, just a different technique of getting to the same place? Or? It is basically a two-by-two two matrix done in spreadsheet form. And you could plot the results of this on a two-by-two two matrix. The difficulty with the two-by-two two matrix, in my experience, is that when you have a list of 300 items, mm -hmm. it's just a blur of lots of dots. And how do I know which dots to pay attention to? And so I want to stack rank. Um, and I can get that with this spreadsheet approach. 
that gives me a stack rank. Now, importantly, the big objection that um, people have to this is I don't want a spreadsheet telling me what I should be doing, mm -hmm. right? I should know what's important without having to resort to an artificial framework. And also, I mean, no mathematical model is going to be a perfect representation of reality. So the answer to that objection is the scorecard is not, it, it's not a decision-making tool. It's a decision-discussing tool. It's a decision-enabling tool. It unpacks the logic of any business decision so that you can talk about it. So you're not a slave to it. Use that to inform you, and you can still override it if there's a damn good reason. It'll bring out the mistakes you may have made, some assumptions in the organization. It's, it's, it's much less about what does the scorecard say than what do the people say when they see the scorecard. Mm -hmm. They say, oh, so what you're saying is the most important thing here is, um, is conversion? Well, yeah, that's my number one objective. Uh, okay, you know what? I, I, I don't think I agree with that. I don't think conversion is the number one objective. I think retention is the number one objective. Oh, I'm glad we uncovered that we don't have alignment on our objectives, on our outcomes. Let's discuss that first. Once we've decided that, okay, maybe it's actually, we need, we need some of both of those, we can do a scorecard that says, well, what things can we do that will affect both of those well? Um, or we've decided it's one of them and you've changed my mind or I've changed yours and we can focus on the things that are just going to um, move the needle on that, one, on that one thing. Once we've unpacked the assumptions, the model is going to give us a gross filter, a gross um, sort of things that are highly leveraged, things that are not highly leveraged. And then we can go and do a little bit more due diligence on the things that sorted up to the top. And we can do things like dependency analysis, resourcing, and, mm -hmm. um, and all sorts of other things um, that, that determine the actual order of implementation. About the specific, too, too much of the time we talk about the art and science of product management. Yeah. And the science part is we use this tool, we get an answer, we do that. But the art side is you exactly what you You can't forget the art side. Which is, this is the conversation that science may be based on faulty assumptions and may be based on misalignment. Right. Mm -hmm. Misalignment, faulty assumptions. Um, I, I had a workshop with a, a series of product leaders, uh, five or six of them around a table. One of them was presenting his challenge. And he said, okay, here's my objective. Um, and I want to talk about different ideas that we could maybe um, prioritize to help me with this objective and we were going to use this scorecard. But one of the people around the table said, I think your objective is wrong. I think you've got some um, assumptions in there that I don't think you've supported. Tell me why you think this is your objective. And he gave him a little bit of evidence and he said, no, nope, I've been in that situation. That's not good enough. And so they had, they, they, unfortunately for him, they tore his uh, spreadsheet apart, but fortunately for him, they rebuilt it better. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it was because there was an artifact to begin with that mm -hmm. they could have that conversation. So somehow we've gotten this far in the conversation and neither Lillian or I have asked you a single question about roadmap. <laughs> oh, well, <laughs> prioritization goes into roadmapping, right? Right, right. It does. So, so uh, you ended up writing this book with your co-authors. What's the biggest change into your practice in, since you started working on the book? Since oh, you published that's it? great. Um, that's a really good question. Well, first of all, there was a change in the prioritization section. Um, we, and he, here's the software engineers will get this um, analogy. We, we broke up the work into units 
Uh, <laughs> I wrote three chapters, you know, C. Todd wrote three other chapters, et cetera. And um, then we did integration and it didn't quite fit. Um, <laughs> we had contradicted each other on the subject, particularly of prioritization. I had my favorite method. That's how that, that uh, wording got into that chapter. <laughs> and each of them, C. Todd and Evan Ryan, each had their own that were also different from each other. Um, and they had described them in their chapters, at just sort of by the way, as of course this is the way you do prioritization, more in chapter seven. And then I didn't write that. Um, so we started talking about, and this is important, um, an important example of exactly what we were talking about, of having an artifact being a way to have the right conversation. We started talking about why each of us liked the, our favorite method. And we discovered that they were fit for different purposes. You would use a scorecarding method when you have a list of 300 things and you're just trying to do a gross filter. Yeah. Or you would use a um, feasibility, viability, desirability mm -hmm. um, uh, scorecard when you were, when you were either you had a shorter list or you were just trying to rule out things that were not, not really a good idea. Um, and you would use Kano when, you know, you're in a commodity situation, you're trying to figure out, well, what are our delighters? Various, various different ways of using reasons for using different ones. The result of that was that chapter seven ended up having five methods <laughs> of prioritization. And so my understanding of prioritization was really enhanced. Um, now I don't always use the scorecard method because actually there are better ways sometimes. So that, that was one thing. Um, the other thing was, uh, um, I think I've developed, because of everything that we um, went through together in trying to clarify our framework, a crisper separation between business objectives and solving customer problems and what would be the KPIs or the measures you would use to judge whether you've solved the customer's problem. Those are two sides of the same coin. You're aiming for the union of those two, right? For the overlap between, not, not the union, the uh, intersection of those two, where you solve customer problems in a way that supports your business so that you can keep doing it because you have to make money along the way. And um, I think I used to sometimes muddle those a little bit. And now um, I, there's a clear distinction so that I'm never going, I'm never talking to a product team without talking about both sides of it. Yeah. Um, a lot of the times, actually, in, in a lot of companies I work with, they're very tilted one way or the other. Either they, um, like some of the panelists here at uh, Mind the Product from Banks um, were saying earlier, they're so numbers driven, they're so fi finance driven that the idea of solving customer problems or being customer centric just sounds like a foreign language to them. Um, and yet, of course, they can't stay in business without actually serving a customer unless they're a monopoly. Yeah. Um, but uh, sometimes you speak to uh, product teams or design teams. I was speaking to this one company um, where their product vision was all about serving the consumer and making sure the consumer was successful and had what they needed and was great. The trouble was they didn't sell directly to consumers. <laughs> they <Okay>. sold through <laughs> a channel. B2B to sell. Yeah. Right. And nowhere in their product vision or their objectives was anything about their actual customer who pays them money. Yeah. Uh, so uh, we needed to balance that out. And when I, when I suggested some, um, some rough wording for what their 
main product vision could be that included that, um, that, 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 that customer, there was this silence in the room and everybody kind of looked at everybody else like, is it okay to say that out loud? <laughs> and once I said, yeah, I mean, I'm, they, they're the customer, right? They pay all of your salaries, right? And there was, again, silence. And then the most senior person in the room nodded their head and then everybody <laughs> was okay with it. <laughs> Brilliant. So you must have been getting get tons of questions, a lot of feedback from product people. What's it, in a nutshell, what's the one thing, the biggest mistake oh. that you see product managers make when it comes to roadmaps? Well, I'm going to go right back to outcome versus output. Um, and I don't mean to sound like a broken record, but, uh, but people, but marketing experts say that it's only at the point where you're really sick of your own message that it's starting to be effective. So I'm going to say it again. <laughs> Most roadmaps are a set of features and dates. I do a bunch of workshops with lots of companies on roadmaps. And the first question I ask is, what's a roadmap? And the first answer I always get is a list of features and dates. Almost always. I gave one at Mind the Product in San Francisco. Great bunch of people that took like three or four people before someone <laughs> answered that. The first people said things like, it's, um, it's how you reach your product vision. And I was like, you read the book. That's not fair. <laughs> um, it's um, it's the problems you need to solve. It's the outcomes you're seeking, right? Um, everybody assumes that it's got to be about deliverables. Um, otherwise, how can you hold anybody accountable? But those, I'll say it again, those deliverables are a means to an end. But deliverables can be outcomes. Well, they can be. Um, in the best scenarios, they're not. Um, sometimes, you know, we, we really do just need to replatform. Um, and we all know that, but we should still have measures of success on replatforming so we know when we're done. Do you think, um, so, you know, back in, back in the day when I was a project manager a long time ago, you know, a roadmap was exactly, that was what everyone expected to see, right. a set of features and a set of dates. Do you think it's time to come up with a new name? Do you think it's not even, like maybe a roadmap is features and dates, right. but what we need is something else with a new name? Well, the way, I think that's a very intriguing question. Um, I'll, I'll answer it um, three ways. One, one is, um, I do think that there is another thing that contains features and dates that is a valid uh, artifact, and that is a release plan mm -hmm. or a project plan um, or a development plan, something like that. Um, the difference between that and a roadmap is, uh, generally speaking, um, the difference between outputs and outcomes, but also time frame. So a roadmap often should, if, if you're going to be telling people, this is our vision of the future, well, that future, if it's significant, if, if the change you're trying to create is significant, if there's a lot of value in it, it's probably not something you can get done in three sprints. So a roadmap usually stretches out many months, sometimes years, and our ability to predict and project what we're actually going to ship features and dates yeah. is not nearly that far out, right? So in software, we're lucky if we can get um, uh, ship dates right six weeks out, yeah. right? Um, so a release plan that's six weeks long coupled with a roadmap that is these are the big problems we're going to be working on over the next year, that makes sense to me as two different things that work together. 
On the other hand, the second answer I would give to that is I think OKRs are an attempt to um, mm. replace the traditional roadmap with something outcome-oriented. Now, unfortunately, just like any artifact, you can abuse OKRs too. And the failure mode that I see often there is that just like a features and dates roadmap, the OKRs become incredibly detailed and constraining rather than enabling. And when you cascade them many levels down to the individual, um, then um, they get so complex that nobody can bear them in mind anymore and they are generally ignored until it's time to uh, review them at the end of the quarter and then they say, yeah, we didn't do that, let's try again. Mm -hmm. um, but if you were to instead have a very simple set of OKRs for the entire organization, well, that matches up directly with the business objectives that we um, describe that are in a good roadmap. And so that way, in my mind, if you're using OKRs, your OKRs and your roadmap should be two sides of the same thing. They should, mm -hmm. they should um, overlap um, largely, if not be the same thing. Um, the third answer is maybe there is something else that's not a roadmap. Maybe it's a strategy deck. Maybe it's a um, product vision um, presentation or video. Um, um, Elon Musk did a one-hour presentation a couple of years ago on his roadmap to Mars for SpaceX. And um, most of it was video of prototypes and designs and things like that for the, for the rockets and the habitats and everything yeah. that he has in mind and projections of costs and timelines. But none of it was features and dates. Yeah. It was all objectives, even had criteria for what it would take to get the cost down to the point where an average middle-class family could afford to migrate to Mars. Um, so it became a story. Yeah, yeah. And I think a really good roadmap is a story about the future and why it's going to be awesome for everyone involved. I know you've got to run, but so we'll try and get you out on one last easy one. Sure. In all the time you've spent working on the book and reviewing things, is there one company's roadmap that you'd say, this, I really love this one. This is uh, being used really interestingly. It yeah. absolutely solves the problem it's set out to do. Right. Um, well, I'll give you an example of an internal roadmap that I really like and that I show to teams a lot. Um, internal because it's very business objectives focused. Um, and it's for this um, small U.S. company in the D.C. area called Contactually. They're a CRM company for real estate agents. And their roadmap is entirely driven by business objectives. 60% of their resources focused on improving ASP, average order, um, average sale price. And... X percent uh, dedicated to um, uh, having uh, engagement and usage to drive um, to drive um, re-ups mm -hmm. uh, and resubscriptions and so on. And even 15% to um, work on their underlying platform so they can go faster. And even another row of 20% for, um, for opportunistic um, fixes mm -hmm. um, and customer requests. That, um, that they've reserved some capacity for that because they know that they get that on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. So it enables a really smart conversation inside the organization about return on investment, about this is where we are investing our calories, mm -hmm. so to speak, um, and um, 
we're uh, we can re- we can take a fresh look at this every quarter, but um, we know within each of these buckets, this is how much capacity we have. The how will change all the time, but why we're doing it and how much resource we're spending. It's absolutely on clear every time. And we can give those teams autonomy because each one of them has a, a, an overall objective that they're shooting for. And they can prioritize within their own swim lane independently of the other yeah. ones. Fantastic. Nice. Thank you very much, Bruce. That was wonderful. My pleasure. So we spent a lot of time not talking about roadmaps. It was like the elephant in the room. <laughs> That's what was making all the background noise? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Maybe it was Mona's elephant from episode three. Um, but if you really want to learn more, then do check out the book. We don't get a commission. We just think it's great. And next week, we've got John Cutler as our guest. We talked with him about working at scale, avoiding being a feature factory, operational issues, and way more. John's got a long history as a product manager, and he's now a product evangelist at Amplitude. And that's all for now. Please leave us a review or get in touch if you have some feedback for us or a suggestion for a speaker or topic you'd like us to cover. We'd love to know what you think. Please tweet us at mtppod. The product experience is part of the Mind the Product Network. Check out your local product tank today. Find it at mindtheproduct.com slash product tank. And here's global product tank manager, Mark Abraham, to tell us more about what product tank is. Product tank is a global community of meetups in over 155 cities across the world, driven by and for product managers. Whether you have a group discussion or you're listening to speakers, the whole idea is to create a safe environment for product people to come together and to share their learnings and tips. Have you seen a great talk? Nominate a future guest on the podcast channel on the Mind the Product Slack. You can find that at mindtheproduct.slack.com. If you want to learn more about product management, take a look at mindtheproduct.com slash training to see what courses are on near you. Emily Tate is our executive producer. Our theme music comes from the German band POW, featuring Arnie Kittler of Product Tank Hamburg. And that's goodbye from Randy and Lily. See you next time.